reads, there'll be a video that links us to our sermon tonight. We're reading from John 11, verse 17. You'll find that at the page of 800, bottom of page 871 in the Pew Bibles. I'll give you a second to look it up. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. Um, and, And he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the, Jesus, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, 
take, over, take off the, gra the grave cloths and let him go. Mummy, why didn't Jesus have any female disciples? I smiled and said, he did. Her question was understandable. Jesus famously had 12 apostles who were Jewish men chosen to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. But the 12 were among a much larger group of itinerant disciples who traveled with Jesus and learnt from him. And in that larger group were many women. Luke tells us the names of three of them. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household steward, and Susanna. Mary Magdalene has gone on to become by far the most famous of these three. But all three are named as eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus had other non-itinerant disciples who followed Jesus and stayed where they lived. Mary and Martha are two examples. We hear their stories in both Luke's Gospel and in John's. And in John's Gospel in particular, we see Mary being the disciple that Judas Iscariot ought to have been, as she pours out her lavish love on him and wastes her money honouring Jesus, while Judas Iscariot has been stealing money from Jesus as Mary worships him and prepares him for burial. Judas is getting ready to sell Jesus out. Did Jesus have female disciples? He absolutely did. And as he said of Mary, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, their stories are told as well. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm wonderful to be with you all as we gather around God's Word in this moment. And as Rebecca said, there are um, sto their stories have been told before, these women. Uh, we've looked at them, uh, and tonight we're going to look at them again. But always as we come to God's Word, and in this hope in this series, as we look at Jesus through the eyes of women, is that we long to know Jesus more deeply. Uh, we want to know what it means to follow Him as, um, as Lord, and also know of His great love for us. And so as we come before this passage and the other one in Luke, I'm going to pray, but let's all pray as we come before God and his word together. Our good and our gracious God, we really do thank you for your word. Most of all, we thank you that your word became flesh in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he walked this earth. Thank you that he is the resurrection and the life. And Father, we pray tonight, as we look at these passages, as we look at Jesus through the eyes of these women, that you will help us to love and to know the Lord Jesus more deeply. May my words be yours. And please work in us here and across the screen by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, as we come to this passage uh, tonight, in many ways, uh, Rebecca has orientated us very well. We're in this series of Jesus through the eyes of women. And our theme uh, tonight is discipleship. And so we're going to explore what does it mean and what does it look like for us to be disciples of Jesus, uh, to follow him in whatever season, whatever moment of life we're in. And as we go through this journey, as we look through the scriptures um, and a few of the female characters, we'll see that Jesus actually brings immense kind of hope and immense certainty in a life that is full of fear and uncertainty. And we'll see that as we see him as Lord and Savior and glorious, 
we too will be compelled to follow him, uh, even at the cost of great sacrifice. Now, as we go about this journey, we're going to explore it in, um, through two lenses, in a sense. Uh, Rebecca pointed out there was two groups of disciples, in um, uh, the, uh, two kind of groups, in a sense. There's the, some females that stayed at home in Mary and Martha, in their hometown of Bethany, and there were some itinerant disciples. And so we'll look at the ones uh, at the beginning of our chapter here in John 11, in Mary and Martha, and then we'll head over to the itinerant disciples. So as we begin our journey, looking at Mary and Martha here in John 11, if you flick back to the very beginning of of the chapter, you'll see that these sisters are in great need, exceptional need. And as we begin this journey looking at what discipleship is about, we're going to see that these women see, hear, and believe in Jesus as Savior. And we're very much confronted at the very beginning by their deep need because their brother is sick. But not just a little bit sick, like he's about to die. And so they turn to the only one uh, to whom they know can save them, save him, which is Jesus. Now, we don't know a heap about the backstory of Mary and Martha, uh, but John, in this case, gives a, a bit of a glimpse into the relationship that he had with them. If you look at verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, that is actually unusual language in the Bible. It's talking here about a deep love that Jesus has for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And it's a deep love that, isn't, that is like a friendship deep, abiding uh, friendship. And Jesus' love for Mary and Martha is then reciprocated in return as they love him as one of his disciples. Uh, But he is not just a friend, he is their Lord. So when Lazarus is sick, they know they have nowhere left to turn uh, but to Jesus. And so when you look at verse 3, you can hear their, their, their desperation, but their desire for Jesus to come and act through his work. In verse 3 it said, uh, they sent for Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, one of your best mates, the one you love, and you love us too. We know you heal people. Please come. Please come and save our brother. But then we read some very surprising verses. In verses 4 through to 6. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now that verse we read before, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there for two more days. Did you notice there the relationship between Jesus loving Martha and Mary? So therefore he stayed away. That seems so strange, doesn't it? It seems shocking. Jesus loves these sisters, so he stays away. He doesn't come. His way of showing them love in this circumstance is to not answer their direct request. Now, that might seem callous, and it seems like, what kind of superficial love does Jesus have? But I really like the way that one commentator named Clink put it. He said this, God's ability to use the sickness and death of Lazarus must be understood as fitting perfectly and purposefully with his love for Lazarus and his family, Mary and Martha. Even the delay of Jesus recorded in verse 6 is not to be viewed as a dispassionate response, but must be understood in light of the love of God. Now that's beautiful theological truth, 
But I can't imagine, and you can imagine too, that that's not what Mar- Martha and Mary wanted to hear. That's not the kind of love they wanted. It's not the kind of love that they were expecting. But the delay is not a lack of care. And the delay is not a lack of love. The delay can only mean there's a greater love on the horizon for them. And we get a glimpse of that as we look in verses 14 through to 15. Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples and he says, Lazarus is dead and and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus' love for Mary and Martha means that he wants to give them a greater revelation of himself to give them a greater understanding of the glory of God through him so that they can believe. Even if that means through immense suffering in their brother dying. Now for Mary and Martha, when they they call out on Jesus, that's similar for us when we call out in prayer. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I imagine you've prayed prayers where God hasn't answered them or you've had to wait And they've seemed good, right, prayers in line with what we think the kingdom of God is about. But the answer from God has been no or wait. And what we see very clearly through uh, this story here is that when that is the case, it is not because there's a lack of love. It's not the case because God can't act. But God has greater purposes. It is not betrayal. This story encourages us to look for the glory of God and the love of God in every and all circumstances of life, especially in the dark and the despairing ones. God's love is not absent and his purposes are never defeated. We can trust in God's sovereignty and timing and decision precisely because he loves us and precisely because he has all power and control. But days pass and now we get to meet Martha in person. In this moment, Martha has sent for Jesus. She's been waiting for him. And then she hears of his arrival. In verse 20, when Martha heard Jesus coming, she went out to him to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like You could just hear the anguish, the pain in her voice there. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that not just a beautiful picture of just bearing all the pain and the grief before Jesus, but trusting in him? A wonderful combination of those two things in trust and mixed pain and grief. And so Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha thinks, uh, in line with Jewish thought at the time, that that means just at the resurrection of the dead at the end. And then Jesus says privately to Martha some of the greatest words that he spoke. In verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good friend. Jesus is saviour. He is Lord of life itself. And at that moment, he asks Mary for a response. Do you believe this? Now, in that moment, we've got to remember where this is in the story. Martha is on the road with Jesus. Martha is in her pain and in her grief. Martha's brother Lazarus is dead in a tomb, silent, decaying. Jesus is just on the road saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this? Like, 
in that moment, he's asking, Martha, do you trust me on my word? Do you trust me on my word? Because he's not raised Lazarus to dead, from the dead yet. And Jesus himself hasn't died on the cross or risen from the dead yet either. Martha, do you believe this? And these words for us echo over our life when we are in moments of pain, in moments of suffering or whatever it may be, moments of doubt. As was mentioned last week and then again today, my grandma passed away and went to be with the Lord last week. Her faith, her hope, our hope is only in that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That is all that is left. And we have certain hope of that, but that is what we cling to. That's what we recite and believe over ourselves. And in times of struggle or doubt, for us, whatever situation of life or moment of life we're in in this moment, we too can believe, trust in the words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whether it is incurable illness or immense distress of some form, relational, personal, whatever it may be, Jesus' words ring over us. I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And when Jesus asks her, do you believe this, to Martha, like it's not just an abstract thought. Like This is deep in her moment. This has got to be trust in with all her body, mind, and spirit. It's a huge question to ask her. And Martha's response, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. From the lips of Martha, we hear one of the greatest declarations of faith in the New Testament. Her faith is only going to grow as she witnesses Jesus die and rise again. But in this moment, she's seeing him as Lord, showing us what it means to be a disciple. And so as Rebecca McLaughlin says in her book, how do we see Jesus through Martha's eyes? We see him as the one who can bring life back to her brother as she craves, but also as the one who is himself the resurrection and the life. Jesus reveals himself to Martha as the one who embodies life itself. To trust Jesus is to live. For us, Martha is a wonderful example of a disciple of Jesus, someone who has great faith and great trust in the circumstances that she finds herself. She knows that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. She believes it. She's about to see it. And so she encourages us too to trust in the sovereignty of God, to trust in his timing, to trust in him as a resurrection and the life. And as the story goes on, we then witness Mary come into the scene. Now, Mary has, uh, in the beginning, stayed at home uh, when Jesus came. But then Martha goes to her and says, Mary, uh, Jesus is here. The teacher is here. So Mary then runs out to him. And in verse 32, she falls at his feet. She falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died weeping tears in her eyes, all her pain and her grief. She just lays it at the feet of Jesus, literally laying it at his feet. And then Jesus responds, verse 33. He he now is deeply moved, uh, deeply moved in spirit. And he asks, where is Lazarus laid? And then he weeps. Far from being callous, far from being removed from the pain. No, he feels it too and he enters into her pain. He enters into the suffering that they are experiencing and he weeps with her. Jesus enters into into our pain too. He knows the pain that we experience. Our natural inclination when we experience suffering of any shape or form can be to push away from Jesus, to push away from God. But this encounter encourages us to lay it at Jesus' feet, to come to him 
For he knows us. He is human. He has experienced what we have. And he is the Lord and the resurrection of life itself. And in verse 38, Jesus, he comes to the tomb. Once more, he's deeply moved and he says, take away the stone. Ever practical Martha responds, but Lord, there'll be a bad odor. It's been four days. And then Jesus gently reminds her, gently reminds her in a way of the confession that she just made. And he says, did I, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? The stone is rolled away. And then Jesus prays this prayer. Verse 41, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then like in an Indiana Jones movie, Lazarus, like a wrapped up mummy, comes forward, risen to life again. The words of Jesus have brought Lazarus back to life. Jesus brings life just with his word. God works through his word and the glory of God is revealed. The delay in Jesus coming has allowed a greater revelation of himself. Jesus' delay in him coming has allowed the others to have a greater love for who he is and for him to demonstrate that to them. Jesus' delay has allowed them to have a greater trust in who he is. And most of all, Jesus' delay has allowed them to see him to be the son of God and to know that in him is life, that he is the resurrection of life so that they too can believe and have life in him now and into eternity. And as a result... They hear, they believe, and they see Jesus as their saviour. And that is what is central to being a disciple of Jesus, to have him as saviour, to trust him as Lord and saviour. And our faith for us in this moment, on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, is we centre it on Jesus' death and resurrection, not just the resurrection of Lazarus. We know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life because he lived it. He rose again from the dead. God raised him back to life. He is the saviour. And our instinct as, as Christians is to, in a sense, confess that and we live it out, but we also got to learn what it means because we often find ourselves placing our trust in other things, seeking other things to save us or to satisfy us or to appease us in some way, shape or form. Like whether it is in the money or relationships or uh, in self-improvement, or in satisfying ourselves through scrolling on social media or in video games, satiating ourselves in those ways, whatever it may be, in becoming a disciple of Jesus, he's the saviour of our eternal life and in our present life. Like Mary and Martha, we declare our need for him and we believe in him as our saviour. And we continue to learn what that means throughout all of our walk with him as a disciple of Jesus. But then as a disciple of Jesus, we don't remain there. We don't remain just in confession. We respond. We respond to him as Lord and follow him in that way. In particular, uh, we follow him sacrificially. And that is illustrated beautifully well in the next chapter uh, with Mary. If you have a look uh, in verse 12, uh, in chapter 12, sorry, we see Mary gives an extravagant sacrifice. She worships him as Lord. In the next chapter, there's a, a dinner, a dinner that's held. Mary and Martha are there, and this is the account of Mary. Verse 3. 
Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped it with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later betraying him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. But he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Mary sees Jesus and she pours a year's worth of wages over his feet, preparing him for burial, honouring him, worshipping him, lavish, unqualified, total devotion to her Lord Jesus. Immediately contrasted with Judas, Judas who wants to steal, Mary pours out while Judas just wants for himself. Now what's Jesus' response to this? He says, verse 7, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus' response is to defend Mary, to honour Mary's sacrifice for him. So in this moment, how do we see Jesus through the eyes of Mary of Bethany? We see him as the one who merits all of her extravagant love, the one on whom nothing can be wasted. We see him as the one who defends her from critique. Now this passage, in a sense, is usually a whole sermon in and of itself. But as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, Mary encourages us to ask, in what way do we or can we extravagantly show love to Jesus, to worship him as our Lord and as our Saviour? We're prepared to give it all, we hold some back. Sacrificial or stingy? And I don't like these parts of sermons or in the preparation because they always hit me the most. I know I've got to learn in my generosity and in my sacrifice for the Lord. And in Mary of Bethany here, we see a person who sees Jesus to be worthy of all her devotion, to be all her sacrifice, and she pours it out over him. But Mary's not the only one who is sacrificial as she follows Jesus. And this brings us to the three female disciples that Rebecca mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. Now, we get a glimpse of their story in Luke 8. If you want, you can flick over to it. It'll be on the screen and I'll read it for you. Jesus is going on about his, his ministry in Galilee, and it says this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who were cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So thinking about what it looks like to follow Jesus, let's look at Mary first. Mary Magdalene, by far the most famous of all three, uh, for some good biblical reasons and some poor historical reasons. We don't know if she's married or if she was single. We don't know if she had children or not. We don't know if she's young or she's old. We don't know anything of her sexual history. What we do know is what Luke tells us here, that she had seven demons that was cast out of her. That meant she was on the absolute outcasts of society, on the outskirts, despised, rejected. Similar but in a different way to the woman at the well that we met last week. She is entombed, she is imprisoned, and she is despised. But Jesus has come to her. We don't know the story, but we know the result. Jesus has transformed her life, redeemed her, freed her, healed her uh, from this evil spiritual power. Jesus transforms her life and she follows him 
and she's following him sacrificially. And so when we see Jesus through Mary Magdalene's eyes at this point, we see that Jesus is choosing people from the very outskirts of society, bringing them into his community, making them part of his community and mission. And as Rebecca McLaughlin says, when we see Jesus through Mary Magdalene's eyes, we see him as one who utterly transformed her life. Mary has gone from being a playground of demons to becoming one of the loved and key players in the Jesus movement, part of his circle of disciples and in his mission to the world. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what is happening or happened to you, Jesus can transform your life. That is the promise of who he is. And by the Spirit, he can transform our life today. Come to him. He will transform you and let Mary go and follow him. And then that brings us to the second woman mentioned, which is Joanna. Now, we're told Joanna is the wife of Chusa, who's the manager of Herod's household. Now, the line of Herod's uh, are no friends of Jews, and they're certainly no friends of Jesus. Uh, They're allies of the Romans, and they kind of rule over uh, the Galilean region on the Roman behalf. For the first readers of Luke, when you hear Herod's household, you get like a shudder that goes down your spine. Because Herod is the one who imprisoned and then beheaded John the Baptist. When we flick open to chapter 13, we hear that Herod wants to kill Jesus. But here is Joanna. Joanna, who is the wife of Chusa, who is in a sense like the chief of staff of Herod's household. She would have been privy to all the comforts of what it looked like to live in that place. And it also would have been highly controversial for her to go and to follow Jesus and to be a benefactor of the Jesus movement. It is dangerous, in a sense, for Joanna, highly sacrificial of her to follow Jesus and be a benefactor of his mission. So when we look briefly at Joanna's story, it's like a Polaroid that we stick on our fridge of what it looks like to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Just a glimpse of what that looks like. As Rebecca McLaughlin says, when we, look, when we see Jesus through Joanna's eyes, we see him as the one through whom all status must be sacrificed, all friends in high places left behind, the one on whom our money should be spent, the one on whom we risk everything. Friends, as a disciple of Jesus, there is beautiful, good and wonderful things that come. And we're also called to sacrifice for him, to leave behind the things of this world and to follow after him. And so when we see the the story of Joanna, we can then also look forward to all the work that Jesus did. To know that he stepped out of heaven, that he then hung on a cross, he rose again in victory. And he did that for us, taking our sins and placing it on him, winning the victory over sin and death, granting us forgiveness granting us adoption into his family. This is the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And the natural response will grow more and more to be to sacrificially follow him whatever season and moment of life we're in. Now, that certainly doesn't make sacrifice easy. Sacrifice is never easy, but it is always worth it. And it is who we are as people of Jesus. And for each of us, the sacrifice is going to be different. We have different things that we value more than uh, one another, but we all have things that we value, all have things uh, that we are called to sacrifice. Whether it is part of our finances or part of our time 
or in career opportunities, maybe in the types or the amount of social media, in the amount of video games that we play. It could be in career, possessions, friends, lavish holidays, whatever it may be, there is something often continual that we're called to sacrifice as we follow the Lord Jesus. Whatever the case may be, because it's sacrificed, it will always be intentional. It will cost something, but it will always be worth it. Because as we look at the eyes of Joanna, through the eyes of Joanna, we see that Jesus is the one through whom all things can be sacrificed for. And to drill into this theme a bit more of sacrifice and discipleship, there's one particular theme that's picked up in all of these women, which is their financial giving. Mary pours out a year's wages over Jesus' feet. These women in uh, chapter 8, verse 3, are giving to support Jesus and the team out of their own means, like giving their possessions, their money, their goods, whatever it may be. These women are so compelled by Jesus and his mission that they sacrificially, financially worship him. And so, friends, we can take inspiration from their giving too. They gave to Jesus and his uh, mission as an act of worship because they believed in him. They trusted him in the Lord and Savior, and they believed in his mission in the world. And so they gave as an act of worship and a gave act of partnership in that. And friends, as disciples of Jesus here at Nawi, that is what we want to be marked with. People who sacrificially give because we honor Jesus as Lord and we want to be about his mission in the world. And can I say, it's a wonderful thing to be part of this church at Nawi. Because as a collective, we are a very generous church, and we want to continue to be so. We're raising over $20,000 a week in order to turn the lights on here for us, in order to fund the ministries that we do locally, fund the ministries that we are seeking to do globally. We raise over or almost $100,000 every year in May for global mission. We're raising over a million dollars for more effective ministry here locally. We're going to do these Operation Christmas Child boxes. There's hundreds of children that we uh, support in, uh, through child sponsorship. This is a good thing, friends. We need to continue to do this, to be the people of Jesus who give financially. We are a giving church. And we are a giving church because God has given to us first. The money we have is on loan. And so we give back to him out of our first fruits. I remember when I was young, I, my first job, and it was actually John Hilberts who used to be a, a youth pastor here. And he said to me, Matt, you've earned 40 bucks, give your first four to the Lord. And that stuck with me. I'm not very good at giving, but that stuck with me. Give your first bits to the Lord. Have you got a little bit or a lot? Give for the first bits an act of your worship. That is what we see in these women. Giving is not just for the wealthy. Giving is for the disciple of Jesus. We do that in partnership together because we worship Jesus and we long for his kingdom to grow, to have an impact in the world. And so as we look at Jesus through the eyes of these women, what we see is consistent throughout all the New Testament, whether we're female or whether we are male, that a disciple of Jesus trusts, believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior and then follows him sacrificially. A disciple of Jesus places their hope and their certainty in him knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and then knowing that lives sacrificially because we're living for an eternal kingdom. As we pass through this life, we travel light, and we travel sacrificially for Jesus and his mission because we know that as, that is the only hope that this world has. And so we present Jesus to the world as his disciple.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again in victory, that he won the victory over sin and death, that he paid our price, and that you invite us now to be forgiven and to have life in you, to be adopted as your children, to follow Jesus as a disciple. So we thank you that he is our Lord and our Saviour, and we ask, please help us to live that out every day more and more, having Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. If we haven't yet, Spirit, please open up our hearts to see Jesus to be the Son of God, the only way to you. And Father, as we live for you, may you get all the glory, may your kingdom grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.